0: If you haven't heard about Anchor by Spotify, let me give you the rundown. Basically, it's the easiest way to make a podcast and everything you need is all in one place. And here's how it works. Anchor lets you record and edit podcasts right from your phone or computer. So no matter what your setup's like, you can start creating today. Then you can distribute your podcast to the most popular listening platforms, including Spotify, with a single tap. Anchor is also the only place you can publish a video podcast to Spotify. Spotify. With Anchor, creators can earn money in a variety of ways, including ads and podcast subscriptions. And best of all, Anchor is totally free. Download the Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. Scenes of blood and cruelty are shocking to our ear and heart. What man has nerve to do, man has not nerve to hear. Harriet Beecher Stowe, Uncle Tom's Cabin. The South is full of history, extraordinary tales of questionable characters, outlaws, heroes, and thought-provoking narratives passed down from generation to generation, like grandma's recipes. These real-life stories and exaggerations of fiction have helped shape the South and have created larger-than-life accounts of legend. Each week, we will uncover fun facts of historical events, interesting places, famous people, and everything in between from all around the South. Subscribe now on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, YouTube, or your favorite podcast listening app to listen to the show for free. So grab your sweet tea, fried green tomatoes, and pull up a chair as we uncover little-known facts about the uncommon history of the South. Hello and welcome to Uncommon History of the South where we discover little-known facts of uncommon history. I'm Brian. And I'm Harold. Harold, I think we finally got your bill finished.
1: Believe it or not, Brian, I'm, I'm really, I got it licensed. Yep, I ran into you at the courthouse while yeah, you were doing that. Yeah, I got it licensed and I'm driving it up and down the driveway, uh, got the painting done, the poster came out wonderful. We'll post some pictures on Facebook for everybody to see, and uh, when it warms up a little bit, since I have no top, I will be driving it up and down the road. Hopefully, test driving it a little farther. Well, what are you going to name her? I, you know, I haven't thought about
0: that. You got to. She's got to have we'll a name. We'll
1: have to have a name. We might want to have people send us a name. Yeah, How about that. Can leave comments. Yeah, leave a comment and tell us what to name this thing.
0: You can leave us a comment on Facebook or on uh, if you listen to us on the Apple Podcast platform in the comments section. You can you can drop us a. What you think, Harold, should name his his new car?
1: Yeah, his Model A Speedster, 1930. Widowmaker. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, a, a few people make a suggestion or two. Are,
0: are you going to get, like, the old hat and the goggles and the big gloves with fringes on them <laughs> to drive My wife it, actually bought me the hat. Oh, I can't yeah, wait.
1: Yeah, and then we'll probably have to put the goggles on because the windshield doesn't really come all the way. with Speedster, most of them, they took the windshield off of them. Really? Yeah, and if... if, if if you want to talk a little bit about that, that, and, and I think there's probably very few people that know this, and I did not know this till a few two or three years ago when I got involved in food with these really early cars, and that is they used to race them on board tracks. Hmm. Now, this was in the 1920s, and believe it or not, Brian, people would build large board tracks, you know, a mile in circumference or maybe even bigger. And they would bank them just like we see a a, a NASCAR right. track today, like Talladega or something. They would be banked really severely, and they would be made literally out of two by fours turned on their edge. Can you imagine how much lumber that it took? I <laughs> You'd can't have imagine. To be Jeff Bezos I've seen, to afford that today. <laughs> well, for, when I first heard, it, I didn't think I believed it. To be honest with you, I thought that that just don't seem reasonable. But but of course I, I'm sure at that time there's probably more wood than there is. You today. know you have a field out here next
0: to your house. We, yeah, we, we could build a good it. dirt yeah. track out here.
1: Well, they went from boards. What happened was they were racing motorcycles and these cars on board tracks. Well, boards. You know the the motorcycles had a oil loss motor right. where they would pump the pressure by hand, and it would lose it as it went around the track. That's why they had to keep replenishing the pressure. So it was an oil-loss system. And then to get the, I mean, common sense, to tell you, you get oil on slick wood, what's going to happen? Yeah. Well, they started having accidents. And there was an accident, I think, in eight, uh, 1928, where a little boy had his head stuck through the fence, and he was watching this motorcycle and car race night, you know. And this motorcycle came around probably doing over 100 miles an hour And he lost control, and he hit the little boy, Mm -hmm. and and sadly decapitated him. It was a terrible thing. The motorcycle went up in the crowd, and the driver was killed. And it was in total six people lost their life. So then, so Congress stepped in and said, "Hey, we need to pass some laws here." And so they outlawed the boards. So then, that's when they went to dirt. Well, that's a little car history. People well, might I can't hearing. wait
0: to see you in the hat and the goggles and the big gloves with fringes. You have to start growing a mustache and get one of the uh, handlebar mustaches. so you'll be
1: Growing a mustache might be harder than building two or three cars <laughs> for me. I, it, last time I did, it kind of looked like I had uh, what dogs have, manes when part of their hair comes back. <laughs> <laughs> that's kind of what it looked like. Well, definitely. Yeah. Hey,
0: help us name Harold's car. And uh, leave us a comment on Facebook or, or on Apple Podcast in the comments section. And uh, we will announce the winner uh the next podcast. So Harold, what happened today in Kentucky history?
1: Oh well, since we're we do just once a week, we'll do a couple of days. Uh April twenty third, seventeen seventy five, Colonel Richard Henderson called for an election to select members to the House of Delegates of the Transylvania Colony at Boonesboro. Okay. And we remember we did a, a podcast, we talked about that in, in here a while back about how that fell through, and a lot of people lost severely over that. In 1813, Henry Clay christened his 600-acre bluegrass farm near Lexington called Ashland, and due to the great number of majestic ash trees on the property, and uh, Clay lived there for 40 years. Well, let me ask you, is that the original house? I don't think so. I, I think the original house burned and was rebuilt, Um, and it's very similar to the original house, but I don't think it's the house that Clay built. Okay. But I think it was burnt and rebuilt Okay. on the same maybe floor plan. I don't know. I remember taking the tour and them telling me that. I was a little disappointed. I thought it was the original house, and I'm sure most people would, but anyway, it's still a magnificent house, and it was done, a lot of the wood in the house was done in ash, which, by the way, no longer is available because of the European ash bore, We may never see that in our lifetime again, uh, people using ash for hardwood. Uh, April twenty fourth, 1896, Big Jim Porter, the Kentucky Giant, seven feet, nine inches tall, died in Louisville, Kentucky at the age of 49. Big Jim experienced a rapid growth spurt when he was 17. At age 14, he worked as a jockey, believe it or not, at Elm Tree Gardens, a racetrack in uh, shipping port, In 1836, Big Jim toured with midgets performing Gulliver's uh, Travels. When asked about how tall he was, he would respond, 6 feet, 21 inches. <laughs> 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 now, if you go to the Filson Club in Louisville, I don't know if they still have it out or not, but a few years ago when I was doing some work down there for them, uh, they have like, his shoes and his – he had a gun made for him. and I mean, it was just gigantic stuff. And they had – I believe I remember plaster casts of his hands and how big they were. Wow. And this was a big man, especially back then. You know, today, you know, I remember in my lifetime when seven foot was really unusual. You know, there was only a couple basketball players, you know, and that was a... Today, it seems like that there... I guess there's a lot more people, so that's not as uncommon as it used to be. But he was the Kentucky Giant, big Jim Porter. And in 2005, the U.S. Postal Service issued a commemorative stamp marking the 100th anniversary of Robert Penn Warren's birth. Born in Guthrie, Kentucky in 1905, he received the 1947 Pulitzer Prize for his novel, All the King's Men. Mm-hmm. And uh, that was published in, in 1946. And he also won a Pulitzer Prize for poetry in 1958 and 1979. So, quite you know, Kentucky, we have a lot of accomplished writers here we in do. Kentucky. We're very fortunate to have them, and uh, some some are well-known, and some used to be well-known and not as well-known now.
0: Yeah. So this is going to be part two of Uncle Tom's Cabin. Why don't you kind of just catch us up where we left off last week, and then, then we'll start from there.
1: Yeah, and I made a couple of mistakes, uh, and one of the mistakes was I said that the Kennedy Plantation was southwestern uh, Garrett County. It's actually southeastern Garrett County, and we'll talk a little bit more about that also, uh, Thomas Kennedy was in the Battle of Kings Mountain, uh, was what I was trying to think of, never to really come up with it with Isaac Shelby and, and so forth. But uh, he, uh, we're going to move into a, a, a part of his book where he talks about, uh, he, he answers questions, which is very unusual to me, Brian, um, how you know when you're, this is a very unusual book. It's a narrative of two different people. Two brothers. Uh, two brothers that probably couldn't read or write, so it was dictated and by word of mouth, and they sit down, and, and a writer put it together for them. And and they probably learned to read and write later. I'm, I'm sure they did, but at that time, they may not have. I don't know that, but it, it could be that they did not know how to read and write at the time when they were reading the book. However, later, they, I know that Lewis had to been, uh, be able to read because he preached and took his Bible and read from the pulpit, so he learned to read and write at some point in his life. That was very discouraged, by the way. Uh-huh. They did not want the slaves to, to learn to read and write in most cases. And, uh, so anyway, it's very sad. So he was asked some questions, um, and I thought it was real interesting to, first of all, the type of questions he was asked and then some of the answers that he gave. And one of the questions that was asked of him in the book was, did a slave mother ever kill her own children? And the answer was yes, they did.
0: Because they didn't want them to experience. They did the not life want, they, they did. They, they thought
1: that they were better off not to live than to live like that, in some cases. Uh,
0: well, let's let's before we go any further, let's this, um, when Harriet Beecher Stowe, um, before she had written the book, it actually didn't it start as a magazine. Yeah, articles I was. Or so? Yeah,
1: I was going to get into that. Um, after I get through these questions. Okay. So we'll come back to that if, okay. you, if you don't mind. We'll come back to that. Um, and then another question was asked of him was, is, and I guess this is when he was doing his speaking and tours through the Northeast. Now you you got to understand, let's, let's set this so people understand it. So me and you will help understand it too. Uh, I have to remind myself of these things. A lot of these things, people in the North did not witness. The, those of us that lived in the South, that were alive at that time, we saw slavery. And I'm sure they, you know, if you traveled much, you saw it every day, you know. Uh, not everyone had slaves, only the wealthiest people had slaves, but slavery was around, and so the people in the South, they knew about these things probably. It was more common. Surely <laughs> more common. In the North, where there obviously were no slaves, it was free states. Some of the, We had a generation of people grow up that didn't know what that was like. And so they would have questions, and this is probably where these questions came from. He says, "Does the slave owners uh, kill their own slaves?" And he said, "Well, he must maintain dominance over them. The other slaves, as a as a matter of will, uh, he must. And if he, 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 in other words, he said he may kill sometime as an as out of anger, but also to show dominance." Now, um, if he had a slave that he probably couldn't control, maybe he made an example from out of him. So he
0: used fear as a tool
1: to Use keep fear, the others. Right, He uh-huh. uh, used fear as a tactic. And, you know, um, what a, again, I mean.
0: I just couldn't imagine.
1: I don't understand, you know, I don't understand. it. And that, that's why we need to, under, that's one of the reasons we need to study this stuff. Well, if we forget our history, we're, we're doomed to repeat it. Right. And what happens is when you study history, you, you understand people more and what their motivations are. And hopefully it's a, it's a lesson to us for for us personally and collectively to look at these things and look at them really hard and say, you know, what, what created a system like this? What perpetuated a system like this? And what we see today, why couldn't they see back then? And, you know...
0: Thank goodness there were people who wanted to abolish this system e- that sure. lived here in the culture in the South. They could recognize the evilness of it and, and wanted to do away with it. Think how much courage they had to have to stand up against a system that was generally accepted by everyone else.
1: Mm-hmm. Uh, he said, does, does, do slaves ever, uh, what happens to them when they get old? what happens to a slave when when they get old, they cannot work? And I think this was more of a uh, problem for the male slaves than the female slaves, especially if you weren't a household slave. Now, ironically, in this slave system, there were people, now this is not in her book, but it is in other stuff that I've read, there were people that became very attached to their slaves. It wasn't all brutality and beating. Um, and, and there was enough of that, trust me. And um, some of these that they were attached to, they may have treated them like that too. But there was a, a side of kindness that they grow affectionate to these loyal servants. Some of the people, some of these slaves were very loyal and loving and forgiving, and they, they just they just uh, were the salt of the earth. They, they saw themselves as a servant, and that's the way they lived their life. And and their children, you know, the the children of some of these masters and uh, female slave owners, the their children that they these these nannies raised, they th- they loved them as much as they did their own mother.
0: Yeah.
1: And so a lot of times when they got old, they took care of them. And, and unfortunately, there were situations to where they didn't. But especially a field hand or someone that worked out. Um. He probably when he got to old, they just turned him out. Hmm. And you know what do you what do you do? You can't read, you can't write, you can't work because you just no broke social down. security. There is no, there's the no nothing. nothing. And it's just survive, you know. And you just you're you're trying to. Um, I guess they live from day to day. You know, they live from day to day. Um, they're there was patrols that were out that the men appointed to look for escaping slaves. And they asked him, what type of people were they? And he said they were the the bottom of the earth to him. They were the most ruthless, cruel people there were. And uh, they took a slave back, they would patrol, they would, I guess they were, you know, paid by bounties we talked about in the last podcast. They would probably pay bounty on these slaves and they showed them absolutely no mercy. All they were thinking about is the money they'd get if they took them back. And they didn't care what condition they took them back in or whatever, if they resisted, they liable to beat them half to death and everything and the cruelty of that. And they asked him, you know, was a slave ever whipped to death or anything? And the answer was yes. Yes, they were. Some of them died a few days or weeks after such a, a cruel beating that they didn't, they couldn't survive it. So uh, yes, it did happen. Uh, did do slaves steal from other slaves? Um, not really. He said most of the time that was an absolute thing that they just an honor system. They didn't do. Now they would, they would take things from their masters, uh, and he talked about them how. To, you know just imagine, you know, you didn't get enough to eat. And so you'd slip out at night after you've worked all day long. You'd slip out at night and go somewhere and steal a chicken and take a risk of getting caught and severely punished and you'd bring a chicken in and then you would clean you know process the chicken, pull the feathers and gut it and all the things you do uh, right. ex- excuse the, <laughs> the graphicness of that but you would you would process the chicken ready to eat it and then you had to hide all that. Because if they found it, you was in trouble, yeah. and they would they punish you for stealing. And they were just trying to f- trying to f- trying to f- feed themselves. And he said that happened a lot. Uh, highest price ever paid for a slave? What was the highest price ever paid that he knew of? He said fourteen hundred and sixty-five dollars. Um, he said. That what's
0: the equivalent today? What would you say?
1: Gee, probably twenty times that. I would say you'd probably look in the twenty, thirty thousand dollar range now. But if you think about it, if you if you had someone for life for twenty thousand dollars that worked every day for you, um, they asked, you know, what days are, you know, what was Sunday like? What was that like? And they said, Well, that was a harder day's work because the especially for the for the slaves that were worked in and around the house because of the visitation of the people on Sunday. You know, the masters would always have company, and so they had to cook more, they would clean more, they would eat more, had to prepare more, clean up after them. And so they asked us, well, you know, what was the Sabbath like for you? And he was, it was just regular chores, and maybe at night they would have a chance to observe the Sabbath after they got their work done. But he said usually the Sundays were not a good day. He asked, how many holidays did you get? off and he's oddly enough uh brian six days at christmas really yeah six days at christmas and only two or three days the rest of the year so that six days at christmas don't you think they had a good time yeah they said they was that was a that was a neat thing for them because they would um they would celebrate and enjoy one another and get to visit and, and live like a halfway normal life and, and another question I was asked of him. Says, "How did you learn to read?" And he said, "Was not allowed to learn to read." Uh, he said only a few slaves could read and write. And this may be that they had actually taught themselves. You know, they had they had seen enough and listened and observed. And we talked about how they, how slave, the, one of the one of the things they did, they always was listening and very attentive what what's going on and always right. seeing what they can get from. it. Um, how big was the slave cabin and what was the living conditions like Um, he said anywhere from it was usually a log cabin with a dirt floor and it was 10 to 20 feet square Um, the the, the chimney was made of uh, sticks and clay which will actually work if it's built properly for a while you know uh, but it requires maintenance, you know, right. every year. Uh, straw for a bed most of the time. Uh, sometimes they would, uh, people, the whole family had to sleep together to stay warm. Um, food, he said, cornbread uh, most of the time and meat. And occasionally a vegetable or soup was, uh, but most of the time it was just cornbread and meat. And probably they got to eat in the field if they were picking some vegetable, garden vegetable or something, they might be able to get to eat when they weren't looking right. you know, from that. Uh, what kind of clothes did you have? How did they How did they furnish you? He said he had one pair of toe or linen pants, two shirts of the same material, and a, and a round jacket in winter. Now think about that.
0: couldn't imagine.
1: Think about how hard that would be to I just can't imagine. I can't imagine. All right, I wanted to go to um, – uh, we'll talk a little bit about Thomas Kennedy, um, explain a little bit more about him, uh, where Harriet Beecher Stowe had visited and, and everything. Um, he, Thomas Kennedy came to Kentucky in 1780, and his house was near Lowell, Kentucky, and that's a name that we don't hear anymore, Brian. No, I'm a not community. familiar with- and for people that don't know anything about Kentucky and everything, it's probably in the south-central part of the Kentucky. Um, and it is uh, near Crab Orchard, Kentucky. Yes, that is a name, Crab yep. Orchard, Kentucky. And that's in southeast Garrett County. He had a he had about 7,000 acres and mm-hmm. about 150 slaves. Uh, he was described as a very athletic man, a very, very uh, stout, handsome fellow from what Uh, descriptions I've heard of him he was um, pretty much well respected I think he was quite a character and especially his later life he he liked to pull pranks and do things to Isaac Shelby and play (laughs) games with those around him but General Kennedy died in 1836 and uh, to give some dates and perspective to this then his son inherited the plantation and uh, right after that and he was 20 years old when he got it so Here's a young man that may have not have been ready for such responsibility, who knows, or whatever, but it lasted about three years, and it's when it, everything started falling apart. And Well, you said in the last podcast his son loved to gamble. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we Talk talked about that, about that and having the game in the, up in the attic. third floor right. of the house and so forth. Now, um, there's another story about Lewis. Uh, I told in the last podcast that Lewis had met up with Harriet Beecher Stowe's brother, and that could be true as well, but there's another account that I had that was written in 1919, and uh, it said that he, uh, on his, Lewis, after he was, had fled, and at one point ended up in Cambridge, Massachusetts, and he was living there with an A.H. Safford, and she was, he was the brother-in-law of Harriet Beecher Stowe. Okay. And it said that uh, this, this version of the story said she would g- visit Cambridge in the, every summer and she would go up and they would sit and tell stories and she learned of his story from those experiences. Now, that's, that's another version of the story. Uh, both of them could be right uh, in, some, in some ways, um, but you know I'm sure one or the other or a combination of those is how she learned of, of his story, Lewis, Lewis and Milton Clark's story. Now the Uncle Tom, and the uh, and we're going to put these pictures, by the way, uh, folks on Facebook so you can see this book. Now the Uncle Tom character in the book was Josiah Henson, and uh, he claimed to be the person that Mrs. Stowe chose as his main character. Um, he uh he was you know like born in uh, Mississippi and then came to or excuse be born in Maryland. Uh, sold south down to Alabama and then came to Kentucky, and he had quite a story. And his, his book wasn't published till 1879. So um, Josiah lived, he was born in 1789, and he died in 1879, so his book was probably published on his death. Okay. And we will, we will show you, actually we have a picture of him as well in there, uh, a sketch of him. Now, uh, the other influence of Uncle Tom was a, a was a blacksmith on the Kennedy plantation by the name of Sam Peter, and uh, he was the one in the book that was beaten um, to death, whipped to death, supposedly. And why? Well, uh, he had this cruel overseer just basically went off on him for practically no reason, and that's that's what. in in several of these stories that just really, I guess it bothers you that people could just legally do that. Now, uh, you couldn't kill a person. You know, there was people brought up on charges for killing slaves. That did happen. Um, And I don't know that it it didn't happen here, but uh, anyway, this Sam Peter was supposedly whipped to death. Uh, Died two weeks later after a severe beating. Uh, Uncle Tom, the Joe Hansen character, was had his arms broke by an overseer, both arms and they grew back crooked, of course obviously he didn't get medical attention and everything. so he was he was probably uh, deformed from life for that. And it said gave him great difficulty in just feeding himself. Mm. Um, so we'll move on forward a little bit um, and tell a little bit about Harriet Beecher Stowe, how she actually, published this material had it happened. Um, there w- it was known through the anti-slavery society that, that uh, she was doing this work and she was approached by a dr. Bailey now my sources didn't give me his first name and I'm sure if I did a little more research we could probably find it. but he was uh, published a anti-slavery pamphlet out of Cincinnati called the Philanthropist and uh, it wasn't doing very well. so he moved the paper to Washington City, or started another paper, it really wasn't very clear, and it was called The National Era. Hmm. And it was not, the, it, it just you know wasn't doing well. Now, how many of these papers were out there? I don't know, Brian. Uh, Cassius Clay's uh, paper, The True American Anti-Slavery Paper, was being published at the same time. So, uh, you know, how many of these were out there? I don't know. Uh, it may have been it was just saturated, the market, right. maybe. Who knows? But anyway, he needed something to boost this paper, so he heard about her and he read her. Her she she hadn't published the book. She didn't have a copyright. She just had a story that she'd written, and he took he she sent her some of his her first what would be chapters of her book, and he offered a hundred dollars for it. Huh. So uh, she accepted it because she wasn't rich or wealthy. She need you know sort of like most people could use money, and then it. I mean, immediately, as soon as it, it hit the paper, it, the, the publication just kind of started taking off. So then he gave her $300 for her work, and I don't know if that was, I think they, they published it every week or something, and she would write periodically in their week, and, and then he boosted her pay to $300. Wow. It didn't specify for how long, but uh, then she realized the value of her book. And she's got a copyright, and as we know now, the rest of it is kind of history. But in in, in its time, it was the most famous book of its time,
0: hmm.
1: and maybe one of, the, and certainly one of the most famous books of all time. It would be in the top, probably five. I, I, it depends on what category you would want to put this book in. Uh, to put it against Hemingway or something like that, as a work of fiction, um, maybe. Some of those books would have passed it by now. But in its time, it was one of the most published books in America. Lewis uh, Clark, one of the slaves that we, we talked about, he came back to Garrett County in 1881. He was 66 years old. He preached at his old home in near Lowell, Kentucky, near the Kennedy Plantation. Um, he went to Richmond and Lancaster and Stanford and Louisville. And he preached and told of his life experiences.
0: That's something I was going to ask you earlier, and I don't know if you know this. How old were they when they were there in
1: Kentucky? Do you, did it tell their ages? Well, um, in 1881, he was 60, so you do a little math here. He was probably in his 20s when okay. he left Kentucky. So he's fairly young man yeah, still. Yeah, fairly young man, uh-huh. And um, I'm sure that there's a lot more to their story than we know. Uh, he moved around a lot up north. Um he, uh, he tried to, you know, uh, free other slaves. Uh, he tried to reconnect with some of his family. And uh, it, it's just a, it's a good lesson about slavery. It's a good lesson about literature and how people can use literature to, to do great things. And that's what uh, Harriet Beecher Stowe did. She I mean, it,
0: it. you know, it literally changed our culture and what was acceptable and how we treat other human beings. Right. So,
1: uh, you know, the only other book that could be compared to that would be the Bible. Right. Well, and, and it was Christian-based in the sense that uh, many pastors, you know, we can all just pick them doing to others as you have them do unto you and so forth. But, um, you know, President Lincoln, and we mentioned this in the last podcast, told her, she said, this is the little woman that wrote the little book that started the big war. I mean, he understood it even at that time, and it hadn't been out that many years, it was published like in 56, I think, 1856, and the war started in 61. So, you know, it was, it was it, that, that fire was already burning, but it was like throwing a little gasoline on right. it. And uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's a, the thing that I think that made Uncle Tom's Cabin, it brought to the consciousness of the people that a slave was a human being that had a soul had a family desired to have the same kind of life everyone else did and I think there were people that looked at them just like cattle and, and as crude as that sounds I think that's that's it was just that simple they did not see them in that way and when she brought that to their attention and brought it to the forefront and uh, it 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 changed the way people looked at slavery and slaves and and a need to get rid of that cruel institution that's great
0: anything else
1: i'm good if you are
0: do you know uh, okay so next podcast do we know where we want to go just kind of give the listeners a little tease on what we're
1: well i've got a couple in mind and and uh, the one i would like to do next is a uh this is a this is a i guarantee a story that no one's heard before because i found the manuscript uh, that has never been published so it's never been in a book um and it's about george hunter and george hunter was a sheriff in bardstown kentucky Now, it's a typical story of a small-town sheriff, but um, what's interesting about it is he didn't stay in that little small town, and uh, he had a very interesting life. Uh, And again, like I said, it's a very rare story because it's never been published. So you'll probably get to hear it here. That would be great.
0: All right, we hope you enjoyed this episode of Uncommon History of the South. To find out more about the podcast and keep up with what we're doing, Follow Uncommon History of the South on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. Make sure to subscribe for free on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, YouTube, and now Pandora, uh, or your favorite podcast listening app. Uh, This podcast was created and produced by Harold Edwards and Brian Wolf.